Alright, it is uh, now two minutes to midnight and I'm here in Ghent, Belgium, the city where I live. It's a, a cold and wet night, there's a few inches of snow, but I'm waiting here, standing right next to a bicycle counter. Two wires on the path track every bicycle that passes here, and a big display shows the result of that count. The city has installed several of these along the busiest bike lanes throughout the center, and every night at 12 p.m. this number is reset. Uh, the one I'm currently looking at is at um, 1247, which is a fairly low figure. Uh, on a beautiful spring day when all the students are in town, that number can uh, go up to six, seven, even 8,000 bicycles, resulting in a daily average close to uh, 4,000. Now, this counter also displays the yearly total, and the total for 2018 stands at about 1.4 million. Oh, and there you have it. New day has begun. Counter was reset back to zero. By measuring the traffic on the bicycle paths, such as the one Leonard was standing on, the city can make more informed decisions about mobility. This particular bike lane was getting awfully crowded during rush hours. As a result, the city has recently started converting the adjacent road, which was a residential one-way street, into what's called a bike street. That means bikes come first and motorized vehicles are not allowed to overtake you. The old bike lane was then turned into a regular sidewalk. This is just one example of how pedestrians and cyclists are slowly becoming more valued road users in the city, reclaiming their space from the car. This is Tomorrow People. A show about building a better tomorrow today. I'm Leonard. And I'm May. May, I have a question for you. When was the last time you used the car? Um, about a month ago, I believe. Oh yeah, I had to get to the doctor's office out of town for a follow-up. Ironically, after my cycling accident. I'm so happy I get to ride my bike again now. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, about 10 years ago, I lived in the suburbs and worked in the city. I had a company car and a reserved parking spot right in the middle of the historic center. I didn't think about it and just drove into town every day. Convenience, you know? Now, however, I move closer to the city again, and I think the car I have now will probably be the last one I ever own. The alternatives just work better for me. Well, it's easiest for us living in an urban area to just jump on a bike, really. It beats being stuck in traffic. Did you know that about three out of four Europeans live in a city today? And those numbers are only going up. More and more people need to get from A to B within those dense environments. But there's no room for any more cars. I mean, the share of public space they have claimed over the years is already out of proportion. In Berlin, for example, less than one-tenth of commuters take the car, yet they use a whopping two-thirds of the public space in the city. And for bicycles and pedestrians, it's the other way around. They make up a large majority of commuters, but they only get to use 7% of that public space. No matter how you look at it, that makes zero sense. You're not kidding. When I was in Rome last winter, I was surprised and admittedly annoyed by the multitude of cars and other motorized traffic everywhere, probably because of the contrast with what I'm used to. 
Luckily, countless cities are taking steps to restore the balance. They're redesigning streets, removing parking spaces, and banning diesel cars. Big capitals like Oslo, London, Madrid, Paris, Athens, you name them. But also smaller places like our hometown here in Belgium, where it all began with a plan from the city council. The problems we wanted to tackle was the issue that mobility in Ghent was getting worse. This is Am. My name is Am Plas. I'm working for Vice Mayor Philippe Pateu. He's the one who is responsible for the mobility in Ghent. And I am his advisor on the topic of mobility. The story in Ghent was a familiar one of congestion, traffic jams and just overall grumpiness. It was much more difficult for cyclists, pedestrians and public transport to get through the city in a safe and smooth way. Uh, we had around 45 to 50% true traffic in our city. This means traffic that just uh, drives through the city with no stops at all. So a plan was designed to counter all this, called the Circulation Plan. In short, it divides the inner city into seven sectors. To drive from one sector to the other, you have to circle back to the ring road that surrounds them, preventing you from uh, cruising through the city center. Now, this only applies to regular motorized traffic. Emergency vehicles, public transport, bicycles, and of course pedestrians, they can still go from sector to sector undeterred. But public opinion and the media, they quickly jump to conclusions labeling the plan as being anti-car even before it was implemented. The car is, for the moment, anyhow, a very important instrument for our mobility. It was not our purpose to be anti-car. So it's not that we are against the car, it's just that we want those who really have to get into the city make it easier for them, as well as for uh, cyclists, as well for public transport. In April of 2017, the circulation plan was put into effect, and the numbers show a positive trend. Through traffic went down, pollution went down, some recurring traffic jams disappeared, others just moved to a different spot. And from a cyclist's point of view, the city is generally nicer and safer to bike through. But let's keep it real. It was not all sunshine and rainbows. I think what we might have underestimated is the economical impact. What happened is that a few stores lost a fair share of clients because of the shift in city dynamics. Some of it was to be expected, like a car dealership located in the now practically car-free inner city. Other businesses suffered because their out-of-town customers fell victim to the false impression that Ghent had simply become unreachable by car. The city had a hard time answering to those critical voices and countering the stubborn rumors. Mobility is always a very uh, emotional topic. I believe we had the proper communication. It can always be better and it can always be more. I think the communication and the false rumors that were spread about the circulation plan really had their influence in what happened afterwards. The opposition got quite fierce and even personal in the election campaign. It was not a happy period for, for our vice mayor, but we actually expected like two or three months of very, very, very negative reactions. And we really were prepared to take a shitload of, of bad stuff. But we really believed in what we were doing and uh, we really were convinced that it was the right thing to do. And 
after the introduction, after the implementation, the positive people stood up. People who said like, hmm, it's well thought through and maybe you have to change a bit there, but for the rest, everything works fine and I think it's a good plan and we're really happy with it. And that's what happened. And from that point on, we were actually convinced that it would turn out right in the elections as well. And indeed, 18 months after the plan was implemented, Vice Mayor Philippe Poitieu and his party gained more seats on the city council and he was re-elected for his position in charge of mobility. It's difficult to find that balance and to see how far you can go. When we introduced the, the mobility plan, we had a vision and we knew what we wanted to do. But of course, we would have liked to have done more and maybe we should have done more because we could have taken maybe a bit more of controversy after implementing, but that's only what you know afterwards. Of course, what happened in Ghent is not an isolated case. What we did was not rocket science. This is a well-known concept and a proved concept. On the other hand, you still are working in your own city with your own context and you cannot compare Ghent with Copenhagen because we have another structure, we have other kind of streets, we have another reglementation. So you have to work with your own context. But there's a lot of inspiration in a lot of cities, that's for sure. Ah, Copenhagen and its reputation, the Valhalla of mobility, the green haven of sustainability. It is often called the bicycle capital of the world. But there was only one way to verify that status. We had to immerse ourselves in it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Copenhagen. Local time is 11.55 a.m. So I uh, just landed in Copenhagen, capital of uh, Denmark. And instead of taking the bus or the subway into the city, I'm uh, jumping straight on the favorite mode of transportation around here, the bicycle. Now, back home, I already registered an account with the, the city's bike-sharing network, and I got a, a prepaid package. So for 300 Danish crowns, which is about 40 euros or 47 US dollars, I have uh, 600 minutes in total to ride their bikes. I reckon that should get me through the week. Also, uh, the wonderful thing about these uh, shared city bikes is that they're electric, so I don't even have to break a sweat. And on top of that, they each have a tablet, a touch tablet mounted on the handlebars, complete with uh, built-in GPS and uh, navigation. So I just uh, show up to the docking station, I pick any fully charged bike, I enter my email and pin code on the screen, and off I go. Here we are, right in the center of Copenhagen. Took me about 30 minutes from the airport along some uh, very nice and uh, wide bike paths. There's some 350 kilometers of cycle tracks in uh, Copenhagen and features like uh, bicycle highways and cyclist-friendly traffic lights make uh, bikes often the fastest mode of transport here. 
it's not that there are no cars at all. I mean, you see cars everywhere, but still, at least as much bikes. Upon arrival, we immediately witnessed that there's plenty of reasons to call Copenhagen the bicycle capital of the world. But here's a few more numbers to clarify the scope of things. This city has about 700,000 inhabitants. They own five times as many bikes as cars. And there's also 600 bicycle shops. A staggering 50 to 60% of all Copenhagen citizens commute by bike every single day. Yeah, no wonder the Danish capital has become a model city for cycling infrastructure. They even made the whole process into a verb, Copenhagenize. It's no coincidence that is also the name of an urban design and a city planning company. And they work together with cities all over the world to map, plan and execute their transportation strategies. The goal of Copenhagenize is to show the world that Copenhagen is not a fluke. Any city can work towards providing proper cycling infrastructure and the people will follow. Our first destination was their office in the harbor. My name is Michael Koval-Anderson. I'm the founder and CEO of Copenhagenize Design Company. Our first question for him was to give a bird's eye view of how we ended up in this situation where cars rule most of our cities. The bird's eye view is that birds shit all over the city basically with automobiles. I mean, that's the short version. It's important to remember that we've lived in cities for 7,000 years, 10,000 years, depending who you talk to. And for almost that entire time, the streets were the most democratic spaces in the history of Homo sapiens. We did everything in the streets. We met, we transported ourselves, we bought and sold stuff, we uh, we flirted, we found our partners, our kids played, right? So when the automobile appeared on the urban landscape, uh, there was a slow start, you know, 1920s and whatnot. But really, starting in the 30s and 40s, the automobile started to dominate and traffic engineers just drank the Kool-Aid and uh, American traffic engineering was exported in the 1950s when we were all through the war going, let's have some growth, let's, uh, let's modernize. So you, all over Europe, motorways were being planned. This building of motorways was all done in good spirits, of course. The goal was to separate different types of traffic so slow traffic doesn't hold up the fast cars and vice versa. Yet we still demanded easy access to everything. So we put up huge asphalt parking lots next to every single point of interest. Ring roads and highways were built very close to urban areas, while public transit lines like tramways were often sacrificed. Our whole environment has been shaped by the very tool that is supposed to provide us with freedom. Nobody thought about it. We all believed in the automobile as the future of transport in our cities. We didn't, we didn't question everywhere. We didn't have any check and balance. We just sort of said, yeah, copy paste, let's go, boom. So, how come Copenhagen escaped that path? We often talk about how Copenhagen was, is, it's never always been Copenhagen as, as you see it today. I mean, we were car clogged, congested, polluted, like, you know, everywhere else on the planet in the 50s and 60s. We ran out of money in the 60s, so we couldn't actually bulldoze entire neighborhoods and put in these monstrous uh, overhead motorway systems. And then we made some decisions in the 70s and started the journey back to the future. So it was, you know, you can live in a lucky city or an unlucky city, uh, you know, however fate dictates that. But that's really what happened. It's mostly by chance, then, that cities like Copenhagen and Amsterdam have a thriving bicycle culture? I don't believe in the phrase bicycle culture. The bicycle was a primary transport form in almost every city on the planet for about you know, 50 to 70 years. So we're not inventing something new and crazy. Uh, we're just putting the bicycle back. So the fact that 
the Danes and the Dutch ride bikes. It has nothing to do with their culture. We just never got rid of it completely. We almost did. We were on the cusp of just killing it off like everybody else did. It's been taking so long to realize that we made these mistakes. And now, really in the past 10 years, we're starting to think differently. Thinking differently starts by asking the right questions. For about the past 70 years, we've been asking one question, that is, how many cars can we fit down a street? So now if we change the question, how many people can we move down a street? We have put so much faith, undeserved faith, in traffic engineering and really nothing else. And, but now we're realizing that we have other tools. So now we can see that we need to study the people. We need to measure how they move around the city. So 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the people of our cities are telling us how they want to use the urban landscape. Engineers are still there. They're going to build stuff. They're going to help us. But uh, we don't need to have them as the sole voice uh, for city planning anymore. You can measure how people use the street, but let's go back to the circulation planning again for a second and remind ourselves of the controversy and fierce opposition it generated. How much value should we place on the public opinion about mobility? Oh, public opinion, yeah. The cities that are doing the most to change have politicians that get it, and not just get it, who know how to communicate it or know how to not ignore public opinion, but just put it into place. Circumventing public opinion is maybe not something many politicians would want to do, but believing in the concept, believing in the work that you're doing is incredibly important. Let's put it in for six months. If it doesn't work, we'll take it out. That helps public opinion. You go in fast, you leave something green behind. Boom, that's a strategy. You have to believe in your concept. You have to put it in as a pilot, and then you're going to really reduce a lot of the problems. A lot of the protests we see in cities are from motorists, and uh, we don't really ask smokers what they think about smoking laws. We just kind of implement it, so we shouldn't really listen to motorists anymore. We should just uh, make our cities better because we know how to do it, and their opinion is rather irrelevant. The goal is to get decision makers on board. A new project at Copenhagen Ice often starts by inviting a mayor or a deputy to a city with exemplary transportation infrastructure like Copenhagen. If you look at the pattern, uh, it's all top down. It is uh, a mayor or a head of mobility or somebody high up who gets inspired, realizes that this is the future and uh, starts work. For all the activists that I know in my network, uh, sorry, but uh, it really is uh, convincing a mayor or a mayor convincing themselves because they went on a holiday you know, to some city and they, they, oh my God, I get it. Let's go home and how do we do this? And then they inspire downwards and uh, get their team excited, right? So you can tell me all about Belgian chocolate if you want and I'll go, that probably sounds nice. And I eat some, I'm going, oh my God, now I understand. You know what I mean? You, you got to taste it, right? Then they get to work redesigning streets to better reflect the mix of transportation modes that we want. The key is building infrastructure for bikes, but on the narrow streets of a city center, you, uh, you restrict the movements of cars. The only thing Homo sapiens want is to go fast from A to B. And uh, if you make the bicycle the most competitive transport form and combine it with public transport, then those are the tools that you need. So I don't see any problems with any city street on the planet. I, I have a solution for it. In summary, redrawing our roads can certainly restore the balance in our streets. A project like the circulation plan in Ghent that cuts through traffic can also be an effective tool. But there are other solutions to get us out of the domination of cars. That's after the break.
This is the ad break in our podcast. You'll hear one of us talk about a sponsor for about a minute or so with a familiar gentle beat in the background. If you have a cool product or service you want to promote, get in touch at tomorrowpeople.today slash sponsor and we'll make it happen. All right, let's go right back to the show. Hey, Leonard, remember that television series, Night Rider? Yeah. The one with David Hasselhoff? Yeah. I watched it as a young girl in the 80s, amazed about how Michael could just hail his self-driving car. Oh, I, I remember it was called Kit, right? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Sadly, it was all just fiction then. But in recent years, the promise grew that we could have access to that technology ourselves. I was so excited. Electrical self-driving cars that you can summon with the touch of a button on your smartphone. How attainable is that, really? Well, it's still a dream. Um, I think many people share that dream. I think there are billions of dollars pursuing it. This is Horace Dedu from Helsinki, Finland. So my name is Horace Dedu. I am I consider myself an analyst. He made a name for himself as an expert in the field of smartphones and computers. And I started a podcast called uh, A Sim Car, focusing on topics like car sharing, autonomous driving, and electric cars. He got a little disappointed by the lack of real progress. But then in 2016, I came across an e-bike and. Um, I realized then that this was a disruption. But but hang on, back to self-driving cars. I still want to know, when will we all be driving around in those? The problem with it is that the ability of a society to absorb this is limited. Horace names four primary obstacles. The first... Switching the fleet of cars. There's 1.2 billion vehicles in use. Second... The second question is infrastructure that is not designed for it. Third. The obstacle of, of regulation itself. And fourth. And then finally, you have uh, questions of economics, insurance, ownership, liability. After just a few years, it seems the initial hype has waned and we're going through a phase of disillusionment. And sadly, for the hopeful girl in me, experts are even debating if we'll ever be able to overcome all of these obstacles. A lot of these are unknowns. We, we are barely able to make a vehicle operate independently under limited conditions. To get from that to everybody using it in a balanced way globally, it's very difficult to see this playing out quickly. And this is my frustration. Going from that world to this one, from communications and computing to transportation, is one of dealing with disappointment or dealing with frustration of the rate of, of change. And it is more important that it happen because that is what creates the carbon footprint uh, for, for, for the planet. And so speed is of the essence. It's not essential that we have Facebook on every phone. It is essential that we move people in an efficient manner without burning uh, fuels to do so. And this is why, to me, the frustration comes. Why are the things which are not important quick and the things which are important slow? Okay, another solution. 
ride-hailing services like Uber and Lyft. You don't need to own your car, you just call for one when you need it. The trouble with ride-hailing is, although there, there has been a certain degree of a speed of adoption, still it isn't very, very popular in substituting enough uh, miles, but more importantly is, is the substituted alternative better and in, in many cases, we're, we're finding now, even though it's been seven years, we're starting to see evidence that it isn't better. You, we would think that it would take cars off the road, but it's actually possibly putting more cars on the road. It's not reducing congestion. It might be increasing congestion. And so it doesn't seem to be a step in the right direction. It's a partial solution in many ways. It is better to have a shared resource than a privately held resource. If only because then we don't spend so much energy manufacturing an underutilized asset. Indeed, our uh, private cars are doing absolutely nothing for an average of 96% of the time. Ride-hailing does improve that, but research has shown that uh, these shared cars don't actually result in less kilometers driven. That's because trips with ride-hailing services are often a replacement for trips with public transport, walking or biking, or just not making the trip at all. According to Horace Didyu, they're also not sustainable from a business point of view. They're not profitable. And because they're not profitable, they don't have incentives to kind of optimize. Uh, they don't have the resources to optimize. There is an obvious optimization, though. Ride-sharing should be done with vehicles that are designed for ride-sharing. The industry for package delivery has designed vehicles that are designed for package delivery. But the industry for delivering people hasn't designed a vehicle for shipping people, which you could argue, well, that's a bus. This is one of these paradoxes when you step back and you look at it from an outsider's point of view, that, wait a minute, why are we using consumer product for fleet operations is absurd. So ride-hailing can be another valuable addition to the mix of transportation modes, but it is not the solution. And then there's also this larger problem with cars. I try to illustrate it by showing that a person weighs... Uh, about uh, 70, 80 kilograms. Um, and then they may have additional baggage or things they carry with them, which, which I estimate then the, the total payload is, let's say, 100 kilograms. Now, if you were to ask, what is the weight of a vehicle that can carry a payload of 100 kilograms? Well, if it's a car, those weights today begin at about 1,000 kilograms. And they go all the way to about 3,000 kilograms for the worst offenders. You can track it from the 70s to the 80s to the 90s, and they all just continuously get heavier. And the tendency has been to even build these monstrous SUVs to, to carry one person. You often hear that's because of safety concerns. But it's a ridiculous arms race where you need heavy cars to protect yourself from even heavier cars. The question remains... Do we really need a weight that is 10 to 30 times our own just to get around? When you actually look at the carbon impact of this waste, it's, it's just staggering. We're destroying our, our planet's future on this very simple idea that we need a 3,000 kilogram vehicle to transport a 100 kilogram person. More than 90% of the energy used in personal automobility is spent on moving the vehicle, not the passenger, just Think about that for a second. And the crazy thing is, we have already solved this problem. You really can easily transport a person with a scooter or a bicycle which weighs under 20 kilograms. And so let's draw a line where we say that 
anything below this line is is acceptable everything above it is unacceptable and that line is at 500 kilograms in my opinion so at 500 kilograms it ought to be enough to transport four people so that's a 400 kilogram payload with 500 kilogram vehicle size no more than one to one and a half times the weight of the person so don't forget a bicycle at 25 or 20 kilograms at 20 percent of the weight of the payload is perfectly adequate and that's what I'm calling micromobility. These vehicles can have an electrical motor, but they don't have to. So think bicycles, e-bikes, cargo bikes, electrical scooters. Just to clarify, Leonard, electric scooters, you're not talking about mopeds here, but the classic kick scooter, the one you stand on, right? Yeah, right. So let's define micromobility as any vehicle below 500 kilograms that does not directly burn fossil fuels. And by the way, it naturally excludes the car because car makers cannot, if you paid them a billion dollars and put a gun to their head, they could not make a car for 500, 500 kilograms. When I put it out there, people are a bit shocked and they have to go on Google and search, oh, wait a minute, let me check this car and let me check this car. And, and so far, no one has shown me a car that can be 500 kilograms, even though, again, their parents probably drove around in these things. The micromobility market is expanding, first gradually, now at a blistering pace. We've had a decade of this going on. We've had hoverboards, we've had the Segway, we've had, uh, we, we now have scooters and we have e-bikes. In Europe especially, we have millions of e-bikes. Bosch is selling motors for e-bikes at over a billion dollars a year in terms of their revenue from that. Horace envisions a micromobility switch in which rural transport and cargo will eventually be conglomerated and automated. Meanwhile, he says urban transport is moving from private cars into smaller on-demand vehicles, and those are optimized for specific use cases. Then small distances will be traveled in and on small vehicles. But it's especially these small distances that take a very large slice of the transportation cake. It's about half the trips. Uh, it's about two-thirds of the money, and it's about 90% of the time. And that's, by the way, existing, not just what might be created. Because w what really is interesting is, is that when you actually observe uh, either phones, smartphones, computers, whatnot, they didn't just come in and take the business of, my, of, of, of their predecessor. They created a lot more demand for that, for, for that thing they, they, they offer. So my expectation for micromobility is that it'll really create probably several times more of that, of that which it took. In which case, actually, from the you know, environmental point of view, might, again, we'll see statistics suggesting that people are riding more and more on their scooters and they're not giving up their cars. I expect that will be a story for 10 years to come. But eventually, eventually, those cars that they're, that they're still keeping are going to be used less and less and less. And over time, I suspect that those will, will become... Uh, as, as horses are now, and no, nothing more than a hobby. We're seeing this evolution play out today already at breakneck speeds. The car business, all those things we started talking about, those things take decades. Here we're, we're talking about things taking months. And, and so certainly it's very fast, but it's also potentially hyper fast. And maybe, again, we'll have some imbalances to deal with. Talking about imbalances, maybe you've seen those images from China where a true explosion in shared bikes has occurred, to the degree that there was an enormous oversupply from several companies wanting to make a dollar, resulting in bicycle graveyards where tens of thousands of unused bikes are dumped. Yeah, yeah, I've seen those. Crazy. Let me link some pictures on our website so everyone knows what we're talking about. 
And similarly, first in the United States and now elsewhere, a bunch of scooter companies with four-letter names are competing. There's Bird, Lime, Skip, Spin, Jump. They all want a piece of the pie. What's the situation in Europe? Europe has a strong position with the cycling. And I think the building on that would enable Europe to also you know, evolve its own culture of transportation, very distinct from, from, from the car. I think it will escalate to the point where it's going to become a, a strategic political platform, as important as energy policy, for example, is now. On a local scale, that's exactly what happened with the circulation plan in Ghent. We asked city advisor Anplas if they were in talks with these micro-mobility companies. We have been approached already, and as well as sharing bicycles, as, as sharing scooters. I would not say that they are the big game changers for the moment. For instance, not in Ghent, maybe in other cities they can be. We have a very large bike ownership in the city of Ghent itself. So the, the bike sharing systems, they can help and they can be of value for some very specific target groups, but they will not solve the mobility problem. But they are a nice and necessary um, extra that we need to get everything in line and, and make it work. But we already were proactive and we have already voted uh, some kind of uh, regulation in the city council. And I think uh, the whole private market can fill up the gaps that we have, but within the framework we wanted and with the rules that we wanted. It's clear that this is all still very much happening today. The end of the story has not been written yet. We will see experiments, we will see experiments fail, we'll see big bets made big bets lost, and, and then we'll settle into some modicum of productivity and, and value creation that, that will eventually be the steady state forward. How quickly that happens, how many more chapters have to be written, I don't know. But it is much more encouraging than what's happening in the auto space right now. One of the most common arguments against widespread use of bicycles and micro-mobility is that it's not the perfect solution for everyone and for every trip. It was a constant refrain in Ghent. The exception is quite often used to demonstrate that it is not feasible for the large part of the people. All of a sudden, everybody was very concerned about people with a handicap, people who had to take large packages along, the people who needed health care, who were inhibited. or any. All of a sudden, you see the exception becoming the reason why your plan isn't a good plan. Instead of looking for solutions for the exceptions, it was somehow a reason to say, oh, it's not a good plan. And as a matter of fact, we do have solutions for these problems, says Copenhagenized CEO Michael Colville-Anderson. I see 90-year-olds in my neighborhood riding around uh, on, a, on a tricycle, you know. Uh, maybe their balance isn't what it used to be, but they're on a tricycle. Uh, you see disabled people, you know, heavily disabled people riding bikes. There's one guy in my neighborhood, he has uh, no legs, so he has artificial limbs, and he has only one arm, and he rides around on a tricycle, and he flirts with ladies at every traffic light. Uh, I think he's from Syria or something, but it's, it's awesome. I mean, you know, people have invented these things already, most of it about 100 years ago. No, there's a bike for everybody. It's not just for the young and fit. It's everybody. Every age, every wage bracket, every kind of disability. There's, there's a bike for everyone. There's no excuses anymore.
we can agree there's no silver bullet that works for every situation, but for every situation we have a solution that works. Fact is, the urban mobility evolution is happening, and we need to make sure everyone can catch up. Whether it's a mobility plan, redesigning the streets, or providing better alternatives in the shape of public transport or micromobility, it's clear that every city and every individual within that city will have to come up with their own recipe. It's time to grab those handlebars and take transportation back into our own hands. This episode of Tomorrow People was produced, hosted, edited and scored by Lennart Schors and produced and hosted by Mei van Wallingham. Additional music by Lee Rosevier. Many thanks to our guests Anplas, Michael Colville anderson and Horace Didjew. Additional thanks to Lisbeth de Bruyne and Jens Rasmussen. Go check out our website for even more links and information on urban mobility subjects. You should really see this picture of a bicycle highway in LA in the early 1900s. We'll also link the excellent micromobility podcast from our guest Horace Dedu that dives super deep into all aspects of the topic. All of that and more at tomorrowpeople.today. Today.